Hello and welcome to this slightly unusual midweek version of Conversations from the ANF podcast. In this episode, I speak to Professor Helen Minnis and Fiona Lettis from the University of Glasgow. They're undertaking a trial into DDP therapy and are looking to recruit adopters and foster carers onto it. We chat about DDP, how it works and how it can support families as well as the trial and what the research is hoping to find out. As always, if you've experience of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please get in touch through the Facebook page or Twitter, or you can email us at aandfpodcast.gmail.com. So today I'm speaking to Helen Minnis and Fiona Letters from the University of Glasgow, and they uh, got in touch with me and Scott and were asking about uh, coming on and sort of explaining about a study that they're doing. So Rather than me trying to kind of make sense of that with my own words, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go straight over to you two guys and ask you to introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about yourselves and kind of why you've come on the podcast. So if you start with you, Helen, could you tell us who you are? Give us your full title. Hi. Hi, Al. I'm um, I'm Helen Minnis, um, Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, which is quite a mouthful from the University of Glasgow. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been... Um, working in clinic, clinical work and research for more years than I would rather say, since the Jurassic period. And I've always <laughs> been interested on, in the problems that children get if they've been abused and neglected. And that's why I'm interested in DDP. We can tell you a lot more about that. Yeah. So, yeah that's Excellent. Uh, Fiona? Um, I'm Fiona Lettis. I'm an adoptive parent. I've got um, two sons that uh, they're now adults now. One's thirty, one's twenty-seven, um, and just very curious about um, life hasn't been how we expected when we when the children <laughs> arrive, as as you know only too well. Al. And I can remember you from doing a watching you on television. I was getting my children just about the same time through oh, cool. the process. So that's a lot of years ago. <laughs> That is a long time. That's twenty-three <laughs> years ago. That was two thousand. Yeah, that yeah. came out crikey. Yeah. So I just I just remember that quite clearly. Um, so I've, I've sort of been working with Helen, and we've been doing um, some research together for a, well a couple of decades now, Helen, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, I was trying to work out how long it was. A long time. Yeah. Um, and just worked in the field of um, adoption and fostering. Um, for the last 15 years. Right. Um, I mean, I guess you're here to speak about DDP. And I was just thinking there might be people who've heard of DDP, that it's a kind of, it's a phrase that's bandied around an awful lot, you know, DDP, it's kind of, could you start at the beginning really and tell me what is DDP? Gosh, Fiona, do you want me to start? Do you want to start on that one? I'll let you lead on that one, Helen. Well, I'll lead on <laughs> it and then you can, yeah. well, you, in some ways you've got more experience. I mean, DDP yeah. is... Um, it's a family-based therapy, but the reason it's dyadic is because what the therapist is trying to do is trying to help the child kind of tune in to each parent. So you would usually do, if there's two parents, you would usually do um, quite a bit of work with the parents in advance so that they're thinking about the child's current behaviour. It could be children really of any age. Thinking about the child's current behaviour in terms of what they've experienced in the past. So the kind of thing that would be quite tricky would be, you know, a child who refuses to do their homework and then goes and hides under the table rather than seeking help. And 
the therapist would try and help the parents to understand that this is probably to do with the child's early experiences. And it's, it's the way that they, you know, grew up not knowing to, to seek help or be yeah. put off seeking help, that kind of thing. And then when the child comes into the room, it's quite skilled because the therapist has to try and kind of keep on the same wavelength with everybody and really tries to encourage the the child to go to the parents if they're quite overt about that. You know, so if the child goes and hides under the table, the therapist might say, Do you know you've got these parents? Go go and snuggle between them. Um and really what the what the therapists are trying to do, and it's it's usually there's usually families are seen weekly for about up to about six months or sometimes even longer. And what the therapist is really trying to do is to kind of put the parents in the driving seat. So that it's not just with the therapy, it's therapy where during the week, gradually the parents are just carrying on. I mean, Fiona, you can probably say much more about that. Yeah, I mean, we, we experienced um, uh, an intervention with DDP when my youngest son was 10 years old and things were very tricky. Um, and I guess, um, one, I, I was really pleased that it was an intervention that included parents, that parents weren't excluded um, because therapists come and go. <laughs> but yeah. parents have to stay the course. Um, and I, I, I think I'd like to explain a bit like, I felt we were out of sync with each other, you know, our relationship, especially with with myself, my, my younger son, and the difficulty he had um, accepting comfort from us um, and coming to us. And though we, you know... <laughs> He's so desperately, we needed that relationship and it was just getting really, really tricky. And um, I think it was really important to do it before he reached adolescence because unless children get then they need to be able to come to their safe base, don't they, when they've got problems. And I think children now, even earlier, uh, want to go out and explore the world, but they need to know that parents are going to be safe safe to come home to and that's what he hadn't learnt in his early weeks and months of life so it was really repairing that damage um, and keeping us all in the room together mm-hmm. so am I right sense. in thinking yeah yeah it totally does and am I right in thinking that people are probably quite familiar with the idea of pace you know the playfulness acceptance curiosity empathy which is by the I guess it's Dr Dan Hughes isn't it who's the yeah. the yeah originator of this and so pace sits very much in one of the toolboxes of ddp isn't it is that fair it's a bit more than that it's 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 kind of the ethos it's kind of a flavoring you know what i mean if you had a kind of if you made an apple crumble you'd want it to be apple flavored and if you're gonna do this therapy you'd want it to be pace flavored um you know so it's interesting (laughs) because that's that's a great phrase (laughs) it's interesting because i mean i i um i did kind of basic you know I did a, a bit of DDP but I'm mainly a scientist um, but I know enough to know that it's a really it takes a lot of skill um, because you, well you can imagine that if parents are feeling quite angry because they've you know maybe really struggled that particular week they just haven't been able to get the child to do their homework and the, the teachers are on them yap 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 um, and the, pa- the the therapist is, it is really empathising with the child it, it, I think what I always found quite interesting was trying to just keep an eye out and just almost with one eye remind the parent, 
remember we talked about this. We're, we're going to try and bring the child round, and I've, you know, I've I've observed skilled DDP therapists, and you know, that almost like orchestra conductors. So it's quite it's quite a different therapy because it's not most therapies are one to one, but this yeah. is very much trying to kind of keep all of the relationships in the room kind of bubbling at the same time. I mean, it is fascinating because I. I... I was thinking about this before we chatted and I was thinking, actually, I do recall that we as a family, we we had DDP with one of our children. Oh, did you? Yeah. Um, and not that I was particularly, it was a very busy time in my life. Um, so I wasn't sure how much I knew what was going on, really. I just mm -hmm. kind of was, um, so I wonder whether that is part of it. Is, is it overt to the parents? Like, this is what we're trying to do. Um or is it just let's come together and talk? No, I think I think it's overt to the parents. I think that's in that sense that I think for a lot of DDP, obviously it, it's quite an intense therapy. So we're not. I don't think anyone's saying DDP is for everyone. It's a, it's mm. a particular intervention. So I, I think you'd be looking at, um, you know, the, the parents have to be ready to take part in the DDP as well. Um, and I think, and it's not a magic wand, and it's about practice and doing things differently. Um, and we, as parents, we often make huge mistakes, but I think, I think the beauty of PACE is it's all in the recovery. That you can, you know, once you've, once you've got the concept and, it, and you can make lots of mistakes, but it's how we recover from that. Um, is is what I think I found most helpful. Right. Um, but you also you also make a really interesting point, Al, that because I'd never been on on the other side of DDP, yeah, that it's hard for it's hard for a therapist to think about, and that is the burden of DDP. And actually, I hope you don't mind me saying, um, no, no. Fiona's son um, is part of our young people's advisory group. One of Fiona's sons and. I asked um, Fiona's son um, just before we were about to submit the grant application to have a look at what we call the plain English summary. So you always have to do a summary that could go on the funder's website that anybody should be able to read whether they've ever done any science or not. And, um, and Lee um, looked at it and said, Helen, I think you're quite biased with this. And I, I honestly, I nearly fell off my chair because I had really bent over backwards to try and be really balanced about whether, you know, mm -hmm. just open about whether we would find that DDP worked or not. Um, I said, well, what, what is it about it? And we had said quite truthfully that all of the therapists that do DDP that we'd spoken to thought it was a good therapy. And that was just true. That was just factual. And he said, yeah, but you've got to think about it from a child's point of view. I had DDP for six months and every Tuesday morning I was trying to explain and find a different excuse to my friends at the playground where I was going on a Tuesday morning. I know my dad was doing the same thing with his employer. So it's quite stressful. And I mean, he said, you know, for me, I think it probably did really do me a lot of good, but you've got to take that into account. And that really was quite, um, that was kind of quite chastening for me because... Mm. You know, I obviously had been looking at it from a therapist's point of view, but you, you forget for families, you know, you might be really struggling to get time off work. You might have, you know, it sounds as if when you did it, it was a busy time. And I can't imagine what it'd be like trying to fit DDP into your mind when your mind's full about a million, a 
a million other things. Yeah, I mean, I think for us that we we've got lots of children, so there was lots of other children. So it was it was often mm-hmm. having to kind of get all of the other ducks in a row and then kind of come out. Um, I mean, I think I'm, I mean, I'm going to have to go away and have a really good think about my experience of it because I, I have not, I never really sort of took an analytical view of it. It was just something that we were doing, which is maybe in of itself problematic. It should be, I should have a really good understanding of where we're going or where we're hoping to go. I'm not sure we're here to kind of unpick DDP though. <laughs> we can, if you want. Um, can I, cause you, we, before we came on, you sort of said, look at you didn't, you were clear. You didn't this, the just saying that DDP is great. is not the purpose of the study, is it at all? So can you explain to me why you're undertaking a study into DDP? Sounds like a, yeah, I mean, a, I mean, really, it's, probably it's not. The, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, to be honest, so I've always been interested in the mental health problems that people who have been abused and neglected sometimes get. And I got interested in this because I worked, I actually ended up working through a travel bug. I ended up working in an orphanage when I was, before I'd even got into psychiatry. So I was, I was fascinated by, um, I guess, what happens when children haven't been able to kind of plug into parents. They haven't had the opportunity to plug into parents. So just as a kind of young child psychiatrist years ago, um, I guess I was kind of scouting around trying to, to see what might be new, what were the kind of green shoots, because there was just no evidence base at all. You know, we just, mm-hmm. and I have to say that hasn't changed. That's really depressing. But, but you know, if you look at the nice guidelines on attachment or the nice guidelines yeah. on looked after accommodated children, they state quite clearly that we actually don't have an evidence base for treatments for children with the mental health problems that have arisen from not being able to plug into parents properly in the early years. So there's this huge evidence gap. I mean, in some ways it would be like being, um, you know, I don't know, like a a cardiologist 100 years ago and not having any drugs for, you know, to treat a heart attack. I mean, it really is that that bad. We just don't know what works. And um, around that time, this would be, God, I mean, we are talking 20 years ago, there was actually some really controversial treatments that were going on. And there was a big, a lot of kind of hoo-ha about harmed children through therapies. And so it was very, very difficult to get research funded because whenever we put a grant application in, you'd usually get um, some quite good reviews. And then you would get some, I don't know, there was some really, really kind of quite crazy stuff written about these therapies back in the day. And somebody would say, but is this not really dangerous? And then we wouldn't get funded again. Because there was things like holding therapy, which came out of the US. Absolutely right. And I think, um, unfortunately, they were, it's always difficult to change the status quo. And at that time, the status quo was individual psychodynamic psychotherapy. And anything else was seen as just a bit weird and wacky. And I honestly think it took, I mean, it took, 15 years before people started thinking, you know, maybe there's something in this. Would you agree, Fiona? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, I just went straight back to the holding therapy and the controversy there was at the time. And it was very difficult to see the wood from the trees, what might be helpful. And every, everything just, just been uh, suggested that it was all the same. So it was about, I think, unpicking things. Um, and just really, I suppose, 
I, I think what's interested me in research is when we did when we did do some research a bit later, Helen, the cortisol research um, with a group of adopted children was. I, th I think what that brought to the forefront for us was the range of difficulties some of these children might have. It's not one thing or the other, and I think you'll you'll probably agree, Al, that about you know. 15 years ago, there was lots of discussion, is it attachment or is it autism? Or, and very little mention of FASD in those days. But, you know, it was one or the other. And I think, you know, we've come on so far in thinking it might be all of these things, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and then, then trying to unpick what we can do that could be helpful for these children and their parents. Because some of the things in the research that we did on cortisol we actually found there were some things like I'll go back speech and language difficulties that hadn't been recognized that nearly all the children had difficulty with which was something that could be helped and could help the family and so on so that's when I suppose I got a fascination of you know the wide range of things we've got to look at and for this group of children it's not usually one thing or another it's, it's complex, and I'm sure you've had that experience with the number of children that you've... Well, you've yeah, and um, it's a few years ago now, but we had Sarah Lloyd, who's got the bus model, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the physiotherapy stuff, which is kind of like opening a whole new door to a whole new world, <laughs> but they're all intrinsically linked. Absolutely. And as you were talking there, and we, it made me really aware that um, the desperation in parents means they'll try anything. And that's yeah. that's always been a concern for me that, you know, if you yeah. said paint, paint in my backside blue and yeah. shown it in the shop window, yeah. I'd do it. Yeah. I think um, that's so important. And I, I actually feel quite, it's something that really upsets me when I see that because I just, I just think, um, unfortunately, there's a bit of, um, I'm really trying to think how to put this in a way that isn't, that doesn't kind of do anyone down, but I think there's money flowing around in the system and we don't know what works. And so some people are, are offering treatments in a very confident way when they don't actually have any evidence that it works. And that really upsets me because, hmm. you know, we were, I was talking to, I was talking to some adoptive parents recently and, um, um, you know, there was quite a lot of discussion about about therapies that had been offered under the Adoption Support Fund. And I was sitting there thinking that this isn't fair, that, that these are, are, are therapies that haven't been tested. And they sounded as if they might be really good and they might be really good. But the thing, but in some ways, that's just as bad because if they're really good and the NHS is not paying for them because there's no evidence based, then that's that's a tragedy, too. You know, mm. we wouldn't. Um, none of us would give drugs to our treat to our that hadn't been properly trialed. And I just feel I can feel myself getting quite emotional about this because I just think these these children and their families really deserve the best, and we they haven't been getting it. You know, they've not been getting the science. They've not been getting the scientific spotlights that really could help to work out. What are the things that are going to help these kids? It, it is fascinating. And uh, there was, 
I don't know whether you're aware, there was sort of an evaluation done of the adoption support fund of the impact of the, so it was the impact of the fund, but obviously that's the impact yeah. of the interventions. And it was really, then there was a real nuance there that seemed to be that in sometimes you would just listening to parents, validating their experience in of itself was making a big difference. Yeah, I'm sure but the evidence, uh, but the evidence of the actual interventions was just not, it was like mist. You couldn't get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're, but you're going to kind of, you're, you're going to do that. So tell me about well, we are study. doing that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's, a random, it's a randomized trial. And um, I think, um, I don't know if you would agree, Fiona, but I think as a team, we were a wee bit concerned that people might not be willing to, to be randomized. Um, but we've done really a lot of work to try and help families understand that the whole thing about randomizing is that you genuinely, you know, you're comparing what you think is best practice with something that might be even better. So that, you know, nobody, nobody should should miss out because, you know, you're you're either going to be doing your best or you're going to be doing the new thing that you hope is going to be better. So that's fair, right. really. It's actually when you when you really look at randomized control trials is actually by far the fairest way to try and work out whether something works or not. But I have to kind of maybe confess at this point that I, when I did my degree, my weakest subject was research. I'm just going to put that out there. So, right. It probably um, wasn't very well taught. Um, I really liked my professor, but I didn't, I, I didn't. Yeah, that's another story. <laughs> You're gonna. You really liked your up. professor. Yeah, he was, that's I another really podcast, him. isn't it? That is another you're, like. You're yeah. going red, Al. You're going no, very I'm just red. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm embarrassed at my the, the the poor quality of my research project. Um, I'm still it still stings ten years on. Um, but I'm kind of confused then. So if you're, how does that work? Because if you're saying right, we're going to take a, a set, one set of families through DDP. What are you taking the other? families through? Now that is the question. So services as usual, and that's really what people, if, if you're doing a real life, a real world randomized controlled trial, you usually will compare against services as usual. And it actually really makes sense here because if you look at what the services are like across the UK, services as usual depends on where you live. So yeah. it's many and varied. So Really, if you think about it, we're comparing DDP against the real life people are getting. Right. Um, if you know, if they approach their social worker and say, "I'm concerned about my child," in some areas they'll get, um, you know, the adoption support fund will pay for a treatment. You know, could be sense integration therapy, or in other areas it'll be you. You know, you basically just get to see your social worker. And my mother was a social worker, so I should say this: I'm a big fan of good social work, and I actually think. I actually genuinely think that good social work might be just as good. So the big the big fact is we just don't know. I think I think the interesting thing so far is when people the the people involved in the trial when we're trying to look at the pathways of um, you know how people get any sort of service it's just absolutely crazy. I mean it's mm. like. The London Underground oh. without a map, yeah, uh, and, and <laughs> it's it's just 
it's just completely random what people are being offered. Yeah, so true. If there's nothing else, you know, if there's nothing else, I mean, in Scotland, there's 32 local authorities and there's 32 ways of doing things. Um, but it, it's, it's, it is just completely random and it's a nightmare for people that you've talked about, Al, who might be desperate, you know, the, 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 of how we're going to support our children. This isn't how we expected things to be. How are we going to do something before they come to the teenagers where we won't have, we'll have very little control over what's happening. So I think one of the things about the trial is, is it's for children between five and 12. So, you know, we're trying to say about the importance of early intervention um, for this, well, for all children, is, it has to be a better outcome than, um, you know, wait until things are blown up. Uh, and so on. But I mean, I think everybody who's been involved in looking at the pathways have just been, the health economists and so on, have just been absolutely shocked about what they've actually mm. seen. Yeah. Whereas I think you and I, Fiona, we've been saddened. We haven't been shocked because we yeah. kind of knew what it was like. And I think I, I've, I've done other stuff, led other trials, and there's always a worry that you're actually trialing something that could be worse. That could actually be doing harm, and there are, there are, um, you know, there have been examples of psychological interventions that seem yeah. to be benign. So, for example, for post-traumatic stress disorder, back in the eighties, you know, people used to rush in after disaster and do, you know, systematic desensitisation, and it was too soon, and it used to actually make things worse. And it took randomised controlled trials to find that out. But what what makes me feel really confident about trials is generally people do better in trials. Because there is some scrutiny. So it doesn't matter whether you're randomised to intervention A or services as usual B, you're, you're going to be getting assessed and you're going to be getting followed up and you're going to get a chance to actually talk about your child. And the feedback that we've got from families is that that in itself is is, is really pleasurable. And it may well be beneficial. And people that generally, people that, that take part in randomised controlled trials tend to do it better probably for those reasons. Well, I mean, I, my mind is blown about how the infinite combinations of, of what, how things and why things might be better or not better. Um, we don't know. I, well, I know for myself, I, I mean, my kind of field of work is in ch terms of children with really challenging, violent, aggressive behaviour. And so often the thing that helps the most is being listened to. Yeah. It doesn't, <laughs> people go away and going, oh, that was yeah. great. And I go, all I did was listen. All I did, and um, and so even that can change. But uh, the question I do have then, and this is maybe a bit of a cheeky question, is why hasn't Dan Hughes done this? So Dan Hughes is not a scientist, and you know I have to say Dan Hughes has been the most fantastic research partner. And I don't even know if you know this story, Fiona, but when I was a wee trainee in child psychiatry, uh, I was probably just getting quite close to becoming a consultant. Dan Hughes came to Glasgow, and I was really excited by. The chance to meet Dan Hughes and to hear about DDP because I'd, I'd read about it. And then I discovered I was going to be away on a training course. I was absolutely gutted. So I wasn't going to be able to go to the training. So I, I decided to be bold and cheeky and I emailed him and I said, I'm going to miss the training. Is there any chance of beating up? And so we met in um, the foyer of the Central Hotel in Glasgow over coffee. And it was so sweet of him because there was this big, famous, um, you know. Um, yeah. He's developer, yeah. And I'm this wee trainee in child psychiatry. And I imagined, as you do when you're 
you know, green. <laughs> um, I thought he'd know everything. And I was like, oh, I was asking him all these questions about the right brain and the left brain. And he said, I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not a scientist. And he was so humble. And I would say that that was where our kind of research partnership began because many times over the years since, and he just has this very, very humble approach. And when we got finally got the money for the randomised control trial, he said, you know, if it turns out that DDP isn't better than services as usual, well, we'll just have to get back to the drawing board and we'll make it better, which I thought was the most yeah. fantastic approach. I mean, that is remarkable, isn't it? Because you would have thought that someone who sort of almost built his, well, if if that's what he was, if you, maybe if you had, if you don't know him like you, you'd think oh, a man who's built his reputation on this PACE model, this DDP that's, that's gone around, you know, the Western world. That's so encouraging to hear him go, well, if it doesn't work, we'll scrap the damn thing. Well, no, he didn't say we'll scrap the damn thing. I don't think that was <laughs> it. I think he said we'll, we'll polish it, we'll tweak it. I got, I got this impression of we get his toolbox out and we fix it <laughs> You know, I think he's got confidence in it. But I think I think one of the things you, you realise once you start doing randomised control trials is all very well to have, you could have the best therapy in the world. And once you actually turn it into the, you know, basically let it loose in the chaos that is our NHS and our social care system, goodness knows whether you'll be able to deliver it the way that it should be delivered. And that's another question. Mm. I mean, and that, that's another that is... question that we're asking, really. You know, we're trying to really... As Fiona said, we're trying to really shine a light on the craziness of the, you know, the patchwork quilt that is our services across the UK. And it, mm. I think if we can get that point across to policymakers with the study, it will make a difference. Yeah, because that uh, is... Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I'm, I'm just remembering that when we took part in that trial, so 10, about seven, God, 17 years ago now, no. you know, the, the debates then were... Could you have a settee so the family could sit together when they were in a camp's room? Or, you know, on, and people were having to push chairs together because it wasn't seen as normal behaviour and so on. So there was there's just the sort of barriers then to actually thinking about how we worked with families together uh, and to try and see if this intervention was going to be helpful or not. Um, we used to literally push that couch. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, Fiona, but they, they used to keep, it, it was such, became such a big deal. And like the clinical director said, you can keep it in the staff room, nowhere else. <laughs> and so like before the therapy, we used to have to push it down the, the corridor to the it, I mean, it, I guess the world has moved on so, somewhat since then. So can you tell me about how, because you're looking for people to take part in the randomised control study. Um, so who who can get involved and how do they get involved? So it's families who are adoptive families or permanent foster families. And as Fiona said earlier, um, it's families with children aged five to 12 who've got, I mean, basically who've got concerns, mental health concerns. And um, what they can do is they can approach their, you know, the social worker or they can actually they can actually get in touch with uh, with us directly. If you just give me a second, I'll tell you exactly what the sites are. If I could just I yeah, emailed I mean, myself a list. <laughs> I mean, what we'll do is we'll also put any addresses into the show notes as well. So people can if you send me the list as well, and I'll make sure yeah. that list is distributed. Cause I think there probably will be a lot of people who are, are interested and we need to make sure that they get the easiest route to to that. 
Yeah, exactly. So we will send you the email address addresses. So it's basically, I, I can tell you where the sites are: Oxfordshire, um, the Milton Keynes area, so Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, uh, Lanarkshire in Scotland, um, East Midlands, South Yorkshire, West Midlands, Bedford, Nottingham, Norfolk, and Bradford. So far. And very soon we'll have quite a few London sites as well. Birmingham's going to be on board soon. Um, and we're hoping to have a couple of sites in Wales. So I think if you think you're in any of those sites, then you can get in touch with our trial managers. So our trial managers are Verity, Kelly and Lorna. And we will send you their uh, their email addresses and you can you know, basically you can ping an, an email to any of them and they'll get back to you. Excellent. And what yeah. does it involve as a as a parent uh, or foster carer? What does it involve um, on a practical level? Yeah. So, what would happen after <clears throat> after consent? What you know, once you basically you have to kind of sign in and you know, yeah. form to say that you're willing to take part. Once you've heard all about the study, had plenty of chance to to ask questions. And then one of our research nurses would be in touch, and that's quite an easy thing because basically they will arranged to meet the family on Zoom or Teams, whichever works best. So it'll all be, you know, remote. And they'll ask, uh, they'll go through a, a, an interview with the parents. And then they'll ask the child to basically come into the room. And we do a, we do a um, something that we call the My World Game with the child, which is, a kind of, I don't know if you know what, what I mean, Jamboard, but it's it's basically, um, you can get the, you, you basically pull down a, a screen on Zoom and the child can kind of, it's got it's got kind of concentric circles. It's really fun. Kids seem to really enjoy it. And they're asked to, there's little counters for people and places. And they can place them right in the centre of the circle beside themselves if they feel close or further out if they feel less close. And then there's just a few questions about who do you feel safest with, who do you trust, that kind of thing. So we're really trying to tap into how, how children feel about their, their social world as well as their family life. Um, and the child does that with the parent, kind of hopefully sitting quietly watching and letting the child do the <laughs> thing. And so that's the assessment, basically. And, and the feedback we've had from parents is that they quite enjoy it because we're asking that, that the main outcome measure is a measure called the RADA. And it asks um, 30 questions, so it doesn't take that long about the kind of problems that children sometimes get if they've had early experiences of abuse and neglect. So things like children being too friendly with strangers or not going for comfort, those kinds of things. Mm. Um, and that seems to be working really well because often I think um, doctors and foster parents think that's been a problem for me, but nobody's ever asked me about it before. So that's the kind of feedback that we'd be getting back. So that's the baseline. And then they'll be um, they they will find out. Um, you know, we'll let them know whether they're in the the DDP arm of the trial or the services as usual arm. And if they're in the services as usual arm, then their social worker will basically you know, tell them what what the plan is, you know, what, whether they're going to go for therapy or whether they're going to have social work support or whatever. And if they're in the DDP arm, they'll be referred to their the local clinic. And then we don't have that much to do with them for the next year except for a three-monthly check-in phone call. So we do, our research nurses do a quick three-monthly 
check in just to see if you know things are meeting your goals. Yeah. And then after 12 months, they get the whole shebang again with the, the same questions, the RADA and the My World Game. And that will help us basically find out whether one arm of the trial is ahead of the other. And that sounds, I mean, if you're a parent and you're looking for support for your child, there's potential here that you will get something that that's going to fast track you onto it getting support for your child, isn't it? Yeah, I think, well, I think that's a really important point because particularly in England, um, one of the blocks um, in the early phases of the trial was that some of the social work um, departments are so stressed that they didn't have the capacity to fill in the adoption support fund applications. And mm. what we've been able to do, we've got a bit of funding for that. So in certain areas, what we've done is we've actually given them a little bit extra social work support so that they can actually fill in those adoption support fund applications. So it means that say you're in an area where the social work team has been really stressed and services as usual would have been theory, not practice. You know? Yeah. We'd like to have given you that, but we just can't quite fill in the form. We've given them a bit of capacity so they can get that form filled in. So it's likely to be at least as good or even a little bit better than it would have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So so if they um so if they're living so if they're living in one of the areas that you've identified, if they've got access to their post adoption support worker, so would they be the first person to ask? They, the post adoption support worker should know about it, and then they contact you, and kind of then the ball will start to roll. Is that? Yes, or... but we're also we're also asking parents because obviously there are some adoptive parents who are no longer in touch with their post adoption support team or with social work at all right and so they can actually contact us directly we can give you the contact addresses for that right and then and what we would then do is if, if people contact us directly and if they are in one of the areas then with their permission what we would do is we would let the social care team know so that if they get randomized services as usual they can get a service the social work team can organize it so we've we've negotiated that with all the social care organizations that we're working with so there's a real benefit to being involved on a really tangible level. You are, if you're thinking you need support and there's maybe, like you said, there's, it's not going as smoothly as you want with your your local post-adoption support team. This is kind of going to get you a bit, it's going to oil the wheels a little bit. We hope so. We're doing our very best to make that the case. <laughs> I mean, that's, that makes and, it quite an attractive proposition. Sorry. Um, and And it's also the fact that, Quite a lot of people do move, um, perhaps when their children are younger, and now out with the three years of the authority they were in, and they might not be known to the, you know, the the um, new authority they're in. And if social workers, you know, overwhelmed, stressed, and all the rest of it, it, it you know, it, the fact you can now self-refer if you if you feel you want to do that could be helpful because that's. That's the difference, isn't it, Al, between a local authority and a voluntary agency? Because a voluntary agency will know their adopters, where the problem is if you're a local authority, they can quite easily become overwhelmed because you don't know who's moved into your <laughs> area and might need support till they pop up asking for it. Um, so I, th I think that's important to sort yep. of stress as well. I mean, I can't... I think I can't... Sorry. Sorry. No, I'm just going to say, Al, that... But, um, you know, Fiona, you've made the point before as well that sometimes, especially when your children are not, they haven't reached puberty yet, sometimes the problems are quite subtle. But we would encourage adoptive parents to be in contact anyway. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Fiona. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of my son. It was, it was 
it was subtle, subtle stuff. So, um, for instance, he, if he was invited to a party, he wasn't really interested in the party. He was interested in who was in charge of a party when he was young. Mm. So he knew who, you know, who he'd go straight to the top. And I know, Helen, you've spoken before about um, children waiting to see you in the clinic. They knew automatically. It didn't matter really what your your very business-like secretary said. They, yeah. they knew who they had to, who was in charge sort yeah. of thing. You know that our, mm. our kids have got a radar about them, about yeah. they can suss those things out. And some things that can be endearing, perhaps before, you know, before children go to school, when they first go to school, that you're sort of seeing it in that sort of way. And they are endearing. But as they get older, you can see that states become mm. traits. You know, and they, they get more hardened. Um, yeah, and and it's just coming into my mind. So I'm just saying, I'm just thinking of when we first went into the the room. It was I was I was completely frazzled. Um, my son wasn't he wasn't happy. I mean, that was one of the things. He was an unhappy boy. Um, and I can remember at the beginning, he would wear so many layers of clothes when he went in, you know. He'd have his, he'd have vests, three T-shirts, his school stuff, his anorak, and then a hoodie. And then and he'd borrow his dad's coat and put the hood up because he wanted to just not be there. Uh, or he'd try and get underneath a radiator because he didn't want to, you know, he, he, it was just so difficult for him. But actually... With just it was the the way that he was encouraged and the way things worked with the therapy by the end of it and it just came into my mind he was able to say go into the football with his dad and his cousins to see Dundee United which not many people would say that was a great thing um was pure love that that was the difference, you know. Before that time, he couldn't really express himself in that mm. way. So I'm not saying DDPs for everyone, but I'm saying, you know, we need to be able to help these children in whatever way is going to be best for them. And yeah. with that opportunity to to actually find out and, and be able to say to nice, well, this this can be helpful, or what other things can be helpful. We we can't miss out on that for our children. We've got to do our best for them. Yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, that this is really interesting. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. So is there anything that I, you'd hoped I was going to ask you that, uh, that I haven't in, or something that, that's, that's burning and you need to say before we kind of start to round it up? Uh, silence was the stern reply. The only thing that I would say is that we've got, uh, we've got a Young People's Advisory Group. We've also got two groups, one in England and one in Scotland, of adoptive parents and commissioners. And we get them together. We've not been so successful in England, but the group in Scotland works really well. Senior NHS managers and parents. And, you know, we really hope that those groups, they've been quite cohesive groups, actually. We really hope that they'll stay with us throughout the trial because whatever we find, we want to turn it into practice. And yeah. so those families particularly and the young people have really, really helped to shape the trial. They've kind of kept an eye on us and made sure that we do things in a way that we hope is as supportive as possible for families. So I think it's just quite important that people know that we've got that kind of adoptive eye on us. <laughs> <laughs> I think no, that's I mean, really important. 
Yeah, no, I think, it, and it does, it, it it validates kind of the study, doesn't it? And it gives people an assurance that it's not just, you know, you're not just a boffin sat in your, in your oh, ivory I'm a terrible towers. boffin. I'm a terrible, terrible nerd. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> you're not just a boffin, though. There's there's much more to you as well, I'm sure. Um, the only um, thing I would say is what you, you've referred to several times, Al, is the validation. I think, you know, when... For adopters, when they do, and I think that's been what I've been impressed with, is the work that the research nurses and so on have done when they've been speaking to the families. That people have, and and the people of of all the people involved in the research, when they see that sometimes the overwhelming burden some of these families are living with with mm. the difficulty, um, I, I I think the parents. Are, can relax a bit that people sort of get it. Uh, and that can be really powerful. And, mm. and the fact that, you know, that you've got a chance to really say how you're feeling. Um, and, and I think that goes a, a lot of, you know, a long way towards relaxing people to to learn how to do things differently with, with our children. Because that's what we've all got to do, really, isn't it? We've got, we're the ones that have got to change to learn how to do things differently. That, 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 well, for me, that's that's the case anyway. Yeah, and I've had now. I've been trawling through my memory banks trying to recall the the toing and froing of the DDP that we had, and I think that was probably is my reflection is that um, that it altered my perception of my child. It kind of it, it developed empathy, but also gave me a window into their worldview, which helped me be different. So there was this really, which is a fine dance, isn't it? Changing parents, changing children, um, yeah. but that's kind of systems isn't it changing how everyone's doing stuff so well it's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you and um really delightful and i'm really excited so can you tell me when will we see the results of this trial it's going to be 2025 though because because of the pandemic we got it, it it was actually wasn't so much that we weren't recruiting families it was actually that all the the research governance got really slow um so we we we're going to be extending a bit, so it'll be it'll be twenty twenty five, but uh, well, but that's for the that's for the numbers. But actually, we're we're learning so much already, pumping the results right. out as much as we can about about systems and you know the brokenness of it all. So, um, it's not all about the numbers. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. We'll put all of the details into the notes, and people can um, and hopefully we'll get lots of people to come through and start to make inquiries and. And hopefully add into what is a, an essential kind of knowledge base that, you know, which is going to benefit. I'm sure it'll spill out of just this the small world of adoption, but spill into other worlds and everything oh, else. Yeah. So, so thank you very much for your time. And I hope you have a lovely evening. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for your time. It's been really nice to talk to you.